book of Luke, chapter 13. Now you may recall from Sunday morning some lines out of the teaching, not my teaching, but the teaching of Jesus where He said, Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. And Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And Jesus said, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but division. We talked about these things on Sunday, and chapter 12 actually finishes out, if you just want to look up a little higher there, verse 54, he was also saying to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out. You hypocrites! You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? He said in verse 57, And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. And that last parable we talked about Sunday, Jesus was making a clear parallel to judgment. And saying, you're being dragged before the magistrate. In fact, every one of us, by the law. The law is our opponent. And the law drags us before the magistrate, before the judge. Jesus said, make peace before you get to the magistrate. You're going to get thrown into prison. And you will never get out. And these are strong and stern words. Words about readiness. Words about fire. Words about judgment. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Finally, Jesus, you're getting around to some Messiah talk. Right? King Jesus. Ready to take down Rome. Ready to make some mess. Bring it on, Lord. And that is what I think was going on in the minds of the people, at least some of them. At least the one who opens his mouth at the beginning of chapter 13. Because it tells us there were some on that occasion who were present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Did you you hear about that one, Jesus? Now that we're talking judgment and fire and division, yeah. Did you hear what Pilate did? That stinker from Rome? Mixing the blood of those Galileans. You're from Galilee, right, Jesus? This, This would tick you off. This has got to fire you up. Now that we're talking judgment... There was granted bad blood between Pilate and the Jews. <laughs> no question about it. Sometime before Jesus began his public ministry, but while Jesus was on the earth, Pilate served from AD 26 to about 36. Don't quote me on those dates, but it's right around that time, as the procurator of Judea. And during that time, prior to Jesus' public ministry, there was a riot in Jerusalem. Known today, if you look it up, called the Aqueduct Riot. You see, Pilate took it in mind that he was going to build an aqueduct from the pools of Solomon up into Jerusalem. He thought it would be a good thing to do. And perhaps it wasn't such a bad idea. But the way he chose to fund it didn't go over so well. Pilate took money, the Corbanus is what it was called, money that was dedicated to the Lord out of the temple treasury to pay for this aqueduct. And the Jews were none too thrilled about it. They gathered a large delegation. They had this delegation there surrounding Pilate's tribunal in Jerusalem. 
waiting for Pilate to come out. Pilate came out, sat on the dais, surrounded by these angry, shouting Jewish mob, as as they shouted at him, give the money back, we want our money back, we're not going to stand for this, we won't tolerate it. Well, what they didn't know is that Pilate expected this and had sent several plainclothes soldiers into the crowd. And when Pilate gave the high sign, these soldiers pulled out shivs and daggers from under their robes and began stabbing Jews. It was a bloodbath. Those Jews who weren't stabbed and bleeding out there around the temple, there in Jerusalem, fled. And many were trampled in the fleeing. It was a complete madhouse as people were trying to get away, but Pilate made his point. Now that's not probably the situation that's being talked about here. But I share it with you because it's an historical example of just what Pilate was good for and what he could and would do. And so there's no reason to doubt this report that he had mixed blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices or at least shed along with the the Greek phrase there mixed with could be shed alongside. So, So the picture is that these Galileans went to Jerusalem to sacrifice and Pilate had them killed. And these people came reporting this to Jesus wanting to stir it up. This was a call, no doubt, to Jewish nationalism. One of the things you need to do, by the way, side note, when we do Bible study, is always ask, why is the statement here? Why is this being brought up? Whether it's Jesus talking or somebody else. If you will pause and ask why, you can often figure out pretty quickly what's going on. And Jesus, again, coming off the heels of some strong teaching of messianic, fiery judgment, is now directed to this issue, this political issue, this slaughter by Pilate. Jesus turns it around. He does not answer the way they expect Him to. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the reporters must have been thinking, no, 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 that's not the point, Jesus. (laughs) We're not talking about repentance here, we're talking about revenge. Look at what Pilate did. What's the deal here? But you know what I love about Jesus? He was never manipulated. You couldn't do it. You couldn't get him to take the conversation where you wanted it. In fact, always Jesus takes the conversation where he wants it. He seems to always be in control and directing where the teaching is going to go. He had a way of just leading it like that. You want to get political? I want to get personal. And so he starts talking about repentance. Do you suppose these Galileans who were murdered this way in this tragedy were were sinners? No. They're victims, Lord. Well, let me give you another example. He goes on. Or do you suppose, verse 4, that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed... That they were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Today he might say, Do you think the nearly 3,000 people who died when the towers fell on 9-11 were worse sinners than those who survived? Do you think that that's why those were killed while others somehow made it out of the buildings? Because they were worse sinners? Or, or sinners? Jesus makes a personal point. Death is the common denominator of all life. We're all going to die. Whether you die by accident, or you die by attack, or you die of disease, or you die of any other way, 
death is the common denominator, regardless of the circumstances of the death. The Lord said in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, and the soul who sins will die. Galatians 3.22, the Apostle Paul said, The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What does he mean? He means the truth came out that our sin might be highlighted that it might become clear to us how desperately in need we were. And once we got to that point, that then by faith we could be saved through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But the common denominator, death is for all who sin. So Jesus takes this conversation, these guys want to report and turn it into a political thing, a rally, and Jesus says, "Uh, uh-uh, it's not a rally, it's repentance. I don't want to be political. Again, I want to be personal. He starts talking about repentance. He says in verse 6, began telling this parable, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Now this would actually happen to Jesus in the last week of his life. You know the story, he and the apostles come up out of, out of Bethany there and they're coming down in Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree, he's hungry, goes to the fig tree, there's no figs on it. And being upset, Jesus said, may you never produce fruit again. And they go on. And when they come back, Peter notices that same tree has withered and died. Well, Jesus told this in a parable before He did it as an example. Interesting. He says, A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it, did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up this ground? And he said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Two tragedies and a parable, and they all come to the same point. Jesus gets personal about the fruit of repentance. John the Baptist was the one who said, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, if you repent, it will show up. If you repent, if you turn to the Lord, it's just what repentance means, to turn around. If you turn around to the Lord, it's going to be obvious. It'll show up in your life. There's going to be a fruit of it. But the parable is clear. No fruit, no repentance. We were talking Sunday again. How do you know someone's born again? There's fruit. How do you know a tree is good? There's good fruit. How do you know a tree is bad? There's bad fruit. An active, authentic salvation relationship with God is marked by a heart of repentance. And I shared this on Sunday, but let me just take this a little bit further. If you are ever wondering or fearful or worried about your salvation, if your heart broken at the possibility that you might not be saved, guess what? (laughs) You're saved. Because you've got a repentant heart. And there is fruit. And you sense that relationship. And you know that you want to be with the Father. That's a really good sign. By the way, the word repent is used twice here, in verse 3 and in verse 5. And though it's the same word in the Greek, the way it's written in the Greek grammar is slightly different. And Kenneth Woost points this out. In verse 5, the word repent is just repent, and it's a once and for all repentance. Just do it, and it's done. 
But the word back in verse 3 is literally are repenting. I tell you, unless you are repenting, it is ongoing, continuous action. So I repent. I turn to the Lord. I give Him my heart. But as I continue to walk with the Lord, I'm in a continual action of returning and returning and returning to the Lord. Repentance sometimes is given a bad rap. You know, by by Christians and non-Christians alike, we think repentance is falling on our knees and crying out and, and, and blurting out every sin that we've committed that week. Repentance, again, is very simply turning back to the Father. If I've wandered from Him, repent. If I'm off somewhere else, I repent. I come back to the Lord. And yes, I'll confess my sins if I've sinned. Yes, I'll confess my wrongdoings. But you know what? There's so many wrongdoings in my brain that I don't even know about. So many things in my life that I do, so many offenses out there, I don't have a clue about. What do I do with all those? I just keep returning to the Lord. I return to the Lord. So it's active repenting along with the one-time repentance where I gave my heart to Jesus in the first place. By the way, what does the vineyard keeper say when the owner of the fig tree wants to cut it down? Look down there again at verse 8. He answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir. Let it alone, sir. It's a single word in the Greek. Aphieme. Aphieme. Let it alone. Luke 23.34 Father, forgive them. Aphieme. So they don't know what they're doing. Lord, Lord, wait, before you cut this fig tree down... I'm hanging on this tree to give him a little more time. So, so let me dig around a little bit. Let me, let me add some fertilizer to this. Let me give them some time. Aphiomate, let it alone, Father. Forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And I think, Jesus, when are you going to learn? He's healing on the Sabbath again. You know, Lord, there are six days in the week that you could heal and not stir up so much trouble. You realize He healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And He heals a blind guy on the Sabbath. And He heals this woman bent over double on the Sabbath. He's going to heal, we'll see later in the teaching, a guy with dropsy on the Sabbath. He just heals and heals and heals and He keeps doing it on the Sabbath. This woman is bent and bowed and stooped and sagged doubled over and that is exactly how Satan operates he wants to double you over he wants to bend you under the weight of your own sin under the weight of transgression Jesus comes along and wants to straighten you out he wants to make it right all the heaviness the immensity of sorrow he shouldered at the cross to straighten us out but not everybody wants to be straight verse 14 The synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. (laughs) Right? Right? So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, 
Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And I love this. As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. And now we get it. Now we understand. Why does Jesus keep healing on the Sabbath? Because that's what the Sabbath is about. That's the whole point of the Sabbath. These were not random acts of healing as perhaps you thought. I used to think they were. He just healed all the time and he happened to nail a few people on the Sabbath day. No. He was intentional. He chose to heal on the Sabbath because healing is rest and rest is healing. And He is making a graphic point. Look, are you not going to get it? Pharisees, synagogue leaders, pay attention. There is a reason God gave you Shabbat. And it's because healing is rest. And rest is healing. And Hebrews 4.9 says, tragically, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What does he mean by that? He's talking about Israel not yet having entered their rest. Because you don't enter into true Sabbath rest until you receive grace. As long as you're working it, as long as you're a law keeper, as long as you are focused on the religious aspect of faith, you are not resting, you are working. And the Hebrew writer said in chapter 4, verse 10, the one who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Sabbath is about rest. Rest is about healing. Jesus healed on the Sabbath to point that out. Now, staying in context, verse 18 says, So he was saying, so in response to this, he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Well, that's nice, isn't it? The birdies, they get a place to nest. And the bread's going to rise. What do these parables have to do with the context? And note this, Luke is very specific. He says, So he was saying. Jesus brings these parables in response to what's happened in the synagogue in response to the synagogue leader calling him out for healing on the Sabbath. He teaches these parables, in essence, in response to religion. And that should inform us of something. What these parables are really about. Now, there are some I know who believe that Jesus talking about the mustard seed growing into a great tree and the birds nesting in its branches are a good thing. It's a picture of the kingdom exploding in growth and the birds getting to have a place, you know, and it's, isn't that a pretty picture? And of course, the leaven in the dough just means the dough rises and it spreads out. And that's what the kingdom's going to do. So isn't that a good thing? It's not a good thing. And he's not talking about a good thing. In the Bible, leaven has one spiritual application, just one. Sin. If Jesus is talking about leaven, he's talking about sin. So we know at least in one of the parables, 
It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. That's what the kingdom's like. There's leaven in the dough. There is sin present. By the way, three pecks of flour. In the language there, it's literally three measures of meal, which was the standard Jewish grain offering. A Jew would pick that up. A woman took and hid leaven in the grain offering? Sin in the grain offering? Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11 says, No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. You shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. And I believe, and I think it's clear in the context, that both of these parables are pictures of corruption in the kingdom. Corruption. Not a good thing. For one thing, no mustard seed could turn into a tree that a bunch of birds could rest in. Mustard seeds don't make big trees. Mustard plants are not big, huge trees like that. And the birds nesting there, we all know birds are evil. (laughs) Let me clarify, because I know we have some bird lovers here, and I always get the call or the email. They're not all evil, you know, Rick. Some are kind of cute. I get it. I know. Birds in the Bible, evil. (laughs) Parables of corruption. Parables of corruption. Birds in the branches, leaven in the flower, legalists in the kingdom, religion in the church. And it's all corruption. And by the way, the third parable that Jesus throws alongside these first two parables we read about in Matthew 13 is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we know the tares are a bad thing mixed in with all this wheat. And we know the leaven is a bad thing mixed in with all this flour. And we know then that the birds also represent, they're not all evil, some birds are cute, I'll give it to you, but they represent evil in this picture. And I find great comfort in this. Why? All three parables tell us that corruption would be sown into the kingdom and as it grew, ultimately it would all have to be removed. Matthew 13, verse 30. Jesus said, Allow them both to grow together, that is the wheat and the tares, the weeds, until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And the thing that comforts me about this is that God is not surprised by dishonesty in the church. He knew it was going to happen. God is not surprised by the possibility that there would be cruelty and carnality even among His stewards. He's got His eye on the mustard tree. And He's got His eye on the meal offerings. And He's got His eye on the wheat field. And He knows. And that's why again we said Sunday, God knows the heart. God doesn't want your religion. He wants your heart. And God can look into any gathering of Christians so so proclaimed and know exactly who there has given their hearts and who has not. Now the tragic side of this is that means in any given gathering of Christians there may be some tares and some birds and some leaven. And so we pray for wisdom and discernment that the church not be hurt by that presence, but that that presence would be altered, that if there are tares they would actually become born again wheat. And that's how it works. And at the cross Jesus said, leave it alone, just let it be. But the time for fruit, my friends, has come. 
He did what was required. He dug around. He's fertilized the fig tree. Now is the time for fruit. In fact, the time for fruit is almost over. The day is not far off where the tares and the leaven and those invasive birds will be removed from the kingdom. Verse 22. And he was passing from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Note that you're going to see that on occasion from Luke now. He is headed to Jerusalem. Jesus has fixed his eyes on the cross. This is where he's going. So we're in the last few months now, the last six months now, probably about the last four months of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he's heading to Jerusalem to go to the cross. Verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Now in answering this question, you need to understand Jewish thinking on the matter. For a Jew to ask if a person was saved, what they were asking is, will a person enter the kingdom? Because salvation and the kingdom are one and the same thing to the Jewish mind. The kingdom of God and salvation, what are you saved for? You're saved for the kingdom. That's what it's about. Entrance into the kingdom. And so to speak of salvation is to speak of the kingdom. And the question comes along, are there just a few who are getting in? Do you know the numbers, Lord? How many are getting into the kingdom? And here's Jesus' response, verse 24. He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then He will answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. And then you will begin to say, Well, we ate we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And He will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. How many are getting in? Jesus said a few. In fact, in answer to this question... Two things to note. Number one, many will try to enter on account of their good deeds. Many people are going to try and get into the kingdom. There's a huge number of people who even today think that by their good deeds they can get in. And when they come face to face with Jesus on that day, He says, I'm going to say, I don't know where you're from. And there are a couple of ways to read that. One is, where where are you coming from? What is your thinking to think that you can just stroll right on in? The literal Greek translation, what Jesus will say, what He says right here, I don't know you, nor where you are from. I don't know you. Why? You're sitting at home, there's a knock on the door. You open the door and there's someone standing there with a shotgun and you've never seen them before in your life and they look a little crazed. Do you welcome them in? I don't know you. (laughs) And you quickly close the door. Someone shows up at your house and you don't have a clue who they are. Do you welcome them in or do you find out? Jesus says, I don't know you. Where did you get the idea you could just come in? And these are unknown hearts. Because they're hearts that were never given to Jesus. And so when He looks, He says, "I, I don't know this heart. There's no relationship here. There's no transparency. There's no walking in the light. 
John said, as He Himself is in the light. You know what that means? Genuineness. And I know I, I, I go over this time and time again. I'm, just, I'm so struck. I don't know if you've seen this as much as I have, but as we've been in Luke, it is all relationship as far as Jesus is concerned. It's just all relationship. Over and over He keeps coming back to this place. Stop playing religious games and get real with me. Share your heart with me. Give me your heart. I'll reveal my will to you. We will walk together. And for those who are a little worried about keeping the law and the religion, guess what? As you're walking with Jesus, kept. He says if you love God and you love people, all the law and the prophets hang on that. You don't have to worry about keeping all the rules if you're loving the Lord. Just love Him. And be in a real relationship with Him. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, 1 John 1.7, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. And the tragedy is that there are going to be many people, vast numbers of people, who are shocked to find the entrance to the kingdom barred. But there are people who, if you said today, do you know Jesus? They would say, yeah. And if you said, well, tell me about Him, they go, it's in the Bible, you know. Well, I, my parents are Baptists, good Baptists, so it's cool. I, I was raised Catholic, so that's good. Yeah, but do you know him? Are you walking in a relationship with him like you would a friend, a brother? Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9 indicate that two thirds of the people of Israel will not enter the kingdom. He says, I'm going to bring one third through the fire. And I will save them. And if that's the case for Israel, then what is the case for the whole wide world? If His chosen people, if only a third of His chosen people are going in, what about the rest of the world? So many are going to try and enter on account of their deeds. But second thing to note, many will enter on account of Jesus. Verse 29. And they will come, he says, from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And gang, who is it that comes along later? Who comes from the east of the land and the west of the land and the south of the land and the north of the land? Gentiles. We do. Non-Jewish people. Don't mishear me. Don't misunderstand. He's not casting out the Jews. He's opening wide the door to the whole world. To everyone. To all Gentiles. And there are many who will enter on account of Jesus and they're going to come in and they're going to recline in the kingdom because they found His grace. Because they entered a relationship with Him. Because when they show up at the door, He's going to go, Rick! Hey, come on in! You think He'll say that? I fully expect Him to. I fully expect... Why? Because I know Him. He knows me. The good and the bad, the ugly. He knows it all and He loves me. I love that. Why do all of these other people get in? Because Jesus is the door. He says in John 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You want to go in? Jesus is the door. That's why the the way is narrow. The size of the door is the size of one man, Jesus Christ. He is the way in. The only way in. There's no other way in. 
And so, yes, the way is narrow. The one and only way to the Father and His kingdom is through Jesus. Verse 31, continuing on, says, Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to Him, Go away and leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. They weren't worried so much about Herod. They were worried about Jesus stirring it up. Well, He said to them, Go and tell that fox. And He doesn't mean Herod's good looking. (laughs) Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. I love that. He's talking about going to Calvary, going to the cross. But the third day is not crucifixion day. The third day is resurrection day, which is the goal. But he's got to go through the cross to get to the resurrection. And so he says, I'm going to reach my goal. Nevertheless, verse 33, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Again, he's portraying the place, the location of his death, where he's headed. It's a great attitude to have, by the way. That Jesus knows where He's headed. He knows He's going to the cross. But He says, nevertheless, i got to keep going. Nevertheless, I go on today and I go on tomorrow. And you may know that by following Jesus, you've got some turbulent times ahead. Nevertheless, you keep going. You keep going. Why? Why do Christians do that? Why do we keep going even knowing persecution may be around the corner? Well, I can tell you why Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy set before Him. That is Jesus looking through the cross to the third day, the resurrection, and in His resurrection knowing that He burst the cords of death and has offered salvation to all of us. You are His joy. The joy set before us, that's how we just kind of keep going. Now Jerusalem is on Jesus' mind. In verse 34 He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan referred to this as the mother heart of Father God. This whole hen chicks thing. This whole picture of Jesus saying, like a hen, I've wanted to gather you under my wings. That's what a hen will do. A hen out in a hen yard, chicken yard, sees an eagle flying over. And will gather chicks to protect them. Even taking the attack of the eagle on its own back. A hen has that protective instinct. They're stupid little creatures, but they have that (laughs) protective instinct to care for the little chicks. And Jesus says, I have that. I've got that mothering heart. Now, be careful. Do not feminize God. Because He is God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit is referred to as He throughout Scripture. And so there is, uh, for whatever reason, for God's own reason, though God is Spirit, He is presented to us always in the masculine form. Always. 
In this case, though, there is something to be understood about the heart of Christ, how much He wants to nurture, how much He wants to protect, how much He has even a mother's love. And He recognizes Jerusalem could have been protected from what was coming. What was coming? A.D. 70. The final attack of Rome. You think the bloodbath of Pilate was bad? This attack would be unbelievable. Up to that time, nothing like it. In fact, all the way up to the Holocaust, people would have wondered, was that, was that it? Holocaust was worse. But it was a horrific tragedy, and Jesus wanted to keep them from that. But instead, it would be the city that saw to His death. The irony of it is that Jesus' death was the end game. It was the plan. And it was why He was headed to Jerusalem. Jesus' death was God's provision to open wide the door to the kingdom. Did you catch the inherently good news for Israel here? At the end of verse 35, Jesus says, I say to you, you will not see Me until... In other words, you're going to see Me. You won't see Me until... You say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that tell us? Those aren't Gentile voices ringing out. Those are Jewish voices who in the second coming of Jesus see Him and say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Israel who will be saved. This is Israel who will go into the kingdom. Romans 11.26 All Israel will be saved just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so as Paul describes in Romans 11, we come full circle. Gospel goes to Israel. Israel rejects it. And because of that, goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles live it out through the church age until it returns to Israel and God completes the whole thing. Chapter 14. It happened that he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath <laughs> yeah, to eat bread and they were watching him closely and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. <laughs> and Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Baiting them. But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Dropsy. What is dropsy? The, he, the Greek word there is hydropikos. And hydropikos or dropsy is severe edema. It's so severe, it's serous fluid that accumulates in the tissues of the body. A person with dropsy would have painfully swollen ankles and and feet. Oftentimes swollen hands. Sometimes a bloated face. And if it was really bad, gooey, weepy eyes. Not a pretty picture. And Jesus looks at this guy and he knows this guy's got dropsy. Dropsy is the kind of thing that if you sat down, oh, in a restaurant, maybe at a counter, and someone sat down right beside you with dropsy, check please. (laughs) And Jesus, note what He does, He took hold of him and healed him. As with the leper before, as with almost everyone He heals, Jesus always makes contact. 
Now, there were people he healed without making contact. He had the power to do it. The contact wasn't the point of transferring the power. The contact was the compassion of Christ. It was this amazing love. This bloated man. Ooh. I mean, someone with dropsy, you could poke their hand and it would leave an indent. You know? Gross. Man. I mean, if there was any one miracle that Jesus could have done without touching, I think that would qualify. That and leprosy. I'd put them, you know, close together. He takes hold of the man and heals him. And when Jesus gets hold of a person, He heals their bloated flesh. And I think it's amazing. In fact, I was thinking about this just even during prayer time, how every miracle on the Sabbath seemed to have a teaching that went hand in hand with it. Like when He healed the blind man on the Sabbath and the Pharisees could not see what was going on. And He made it clear they were the ones who were blind. Well, in this situation, He's here at the house of this Pharisee He heals this guy with dropsy and then he looks around. Do you guys understand? The problem of the Pharisees was bloated, swelling pride. Their flesh was full of pride. They were so bloated by their pride. Swollen flesh, spiritual edema. That's what what pride is. And Jesus touches, takes hold, and drives the pride away. And pride is painful. It really is, because a prideful person knows they have to keep up the image. i got to protect that pride. And that's hard work. And it's exhausting. And you don't want anyone to really know who you are because your pride will crumble for it. Jesus takes hold of you to drive out the pride. He relieves us of that heavy, painful thing. And at the same time points out... the Well, pride's going all around actually here. It's not just the pride of the Pharisees. Verse 7, he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. When he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. And he says to them, verse 8, When you're invited to... When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. Sound advice. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. And then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will will be exalted. Jesus says, avoid self-promotion. Now that is directly opposed to the mentality of our culture, which is all about self-promotion. Jesus says, no, go to last place. Get at the end of the line. Sit in the back of the church. Those of you in the back, good job. <laughs> Give other people back. I'm so impressed with all of you. You know, well, the whole front row is just wide open. What gracious people you are. <laughs> Move to the back, Jesus says. Because if we wait on the Lord and His promotion, it's always honorable. It's always good. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11 says, The proud look of a man will be abased. We could say the proud look or the bloated face of a man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled. 
and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Remember what happens when the Master comes and finds His servants on the alert when He comes? He will serve them. Luke 12.37 He will gird Himself, have them recline, and will come up and wait upon them. Can you even grasp that thought? That the Creator, King, Lord, Majesty of all the universe says, Hey, can I top off your tea? What? No, Lord. No. What amazing honor. If we will humble ourselves. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. And that's not just good advice. It is good imaging. Because it is the very nature of Jesus Himself. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to be like Jesus, you start in the place of humility. We start by saying, Lord, touch me and remove the edema of my pride. Remove the swelling, Lord. And make me humble before You. And You will be like Christ. Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 12. He also went on to say that the one who had invited Him, or to the one who had invited Him, Hey, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. Now, at this point, if you're the guy who's having this party and he's saying this to you, you're going, huh? Don't invite my friends. That's kind of weird. Because that's what we do when we have a party. (laughs) And what's wrong with having them invite me then to their house? Jesus goes on, verse 13. But when you give a reception, or literally a feast, invite the poor, and the crippled, and the lame, and the blind, which was so abhorrent to a Jew in Israel. Because the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind were sinners. Obviously they were sinners. They've got disease. They have illness. They've got problems. They're sinners. Why would I invite that into my house? Jesus says invite them and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The resurrection of the righteous. Speaking here of the judgment seat of Christ. And again, we talked about this on Sunday. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. We do have a judgment that we're going to. Those who have been saved by grace, your judgment taken at the cross, your eternal salvation paid for there, but you have a judgment, the judgment seat, the bema seat, literally of Christ, that, that dais for doling out various and sundry responsibilities and rewards for the kingdom. I don't know what that's going to look like. I have spent a lot of time thinking about that. Will it be a new Taylor guitar? I would be okay with that. You know, what, what, what are the rewards? And, and I, my sense is it has to do with crowns. The New Testament does talk about five different crowns, different types of crowns that are given to the saints, given to those who are faithful. And we're reminded that the 
elders, the 24 elders around the throne in worship, all when they worship, cast their crowns before the Lord. So to my way of thinking, the better the reward, the better I have to offer in worship. Which is why I want the big crown. It's not so I can walk around and go... See that jewel right there? Yeah, that's driving Lisa's daughter to school every day. Right there. Right there. That's Monica. All is big M. A big yeah. Well, it's probably three or four, or a big M shape. You know, for Monica, diamonds and jewels. She's adorable. Crowns for worship. And these are doled out at the Bema Seat. Jesus said in Revelation 22, 12, and I know this is maybe a new idea for some, we get rewards? And there's different kinds of rewards based on different kinds of service here? Really? That, I don't know. That doesn't sound fair. It doesn't? Why not? That totally sounds fair. What's not fair is the fact that any of us are saved. That's not fair. But He saves us, and then He begins to reward. And those rewards are used in service and reflected in responsibility. Jesus in Revelation 22.12 said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what He has done. And He can't be talking about salvation there, because salvation is not based on what we've done. Salvation is by grace. Verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You guys taking the nod from Peter and blurting some stuff out here. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. I just love, what a storyteller. You know, a guy blurts something out and Jesus starts into a story and you know it grabs their attention. Oh, it's... What? What? It's a new one. I haven't heard this one yet. Man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. At the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and have a look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one says, I have married a wife and for that reason, I cannot come. Once again, Jesus very pointedly calls out those who were first chosen. Israel. And I'm not meaning to point fingers here, but Jesus is very clear. Those who are called first, invited to the feast, first invited to the son's wedding, first, but come up with excuses not to engage, not to be there. And these excuses reveal... Rebellious hearts. And we would do well to test this against our own hearts. Look at these excuses. Excuse number one in verse 18. i got to see my land. Guy's got an earthly focus. He's not heavenly minded. He needs to hear Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 7.31 The form of this world is passing away. You don't need to go look at your land. Excuse number two. In verse 19. Oh, i got to work my oxen. Guy's got a success focus. I gotta go to work. I got stuff to do. I remind you what the Hebrew writer said. 
Chapter 4, verse 10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Success is not going to get you what you think it will. It's just going to make you tired. Excuse number 3, verse 20, the wife. Now there are a couple of ways of looking at this. I know I got to be very careful. We'll leave the one way alone. I put it this way. I'm sorry I can't come. I got to go enjoy my new wife. Okay, guy's got a pleasure focus. I'd rather be off with her. You know, we're, we're newly married. How can you expect me to even leave the house? Which is what a lot of young men think before they get married. <laughs> Psalms. <laughs> Psalm 16, verse 11. And if there are any young men here, they're going, what? What? <laughs> Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And yet, excuses, excuses, excuses. And you know, it really doesn't matter what the excuse was. I was having a conversation with, well, someone in my household. (laughs) I'll let you guess. You don't have to. Please don't say anything out loud. But no, conversation yesterday. And we were talking about church. And... You know, well, I'm sick, or, well, I've got homework, or, well, I can't make it, or, well, I've got this. That. And, and here's what I, I said. We're standing in the kitchen. I said, you know what? There are always good reasons not to go. There are always good reasons to skip out. There's one reason to always show up, and his name is Jesus. Amen. And I'll tell you what, he is worth it every single time. Amen. He's always worth it. But he's not even talking about church here. He's talking about coming into the kingdom. You know what Jesus said earlier? Hey, be assured, little flock, my Father has has given you the kingdom. Yeah, but I got a new yoke of oxen. Got to work. Got to go to the field. What? And the one thing all these guys have in, in common here is excuses. And the truth is, they just didn't want to come. I can't even imagine that. G. Campbell Morgan said, back of an excuse is a lack of desire. And I I think when we hear excuses, and forget about church attendance, because again, even that can start to get religious. I don't want anybody here because they want to check the box. My heart is, and my prayer is that you're here because you want to see Jesus. You want to be where He is. You want to hear about Him. You want to learn from Him. You want to worship Him. Great reasons for being here. But the whole idea here, back of an excuse is a lack of desire. We do what we want to do. We do what we feel passionate about. We have no problem doing those things we love to do. I still don't know why anyone would not want to come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Why would you not want to be in heaven? Why would you not want to see Jesus? Why would you not? Why would you think this life... We have been so deceived to think that anything in this life even compares. It's not even the same category with what is coming. 
And that's what this is about. And people say, ah, you know what? Gotta see my land. Gotta work my oxen. Gotta be with my wife. I, I can't. I, I, I can't. Sorry. It's got other stuff going on. Back of an excuse is a lack of desire. Verse 21. And a slave came back and reported this to his master. And then the head of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said to his master, "Uh, Master, what you commanded has been done. And there's still room. And the master said to that slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and note this word, and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. That is the compelling nature of grace. God says, I want a full house. I don't want anybody missing. I want grace to go out to every corner of the world, even into the hedges. I want you to compel them to come so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Compel them to come. Strong words, Jesus. And men like Augustine and Luther actually took that verse and believed that the use of that word compel allowed them, if not commanded them, to coerce people to become Christians. There are Jews today who remember their ancestors during the Inquisitions being told to convert or die. That was the choice they were given by Christians. And it's tragic. I've had a number of conversations in Israel with Jewish people who, who they love to bring up, you know, the Inquisitions and the Crusades. And the Crusades is a totally different story, but they love to bring this stuff up and say, our ancestors were told by your people, convert or die. And that's why. But that's not the heart of Jesus. You know that. Why does He use the word compel? Because these people that are out... Not, we're not even talking now about the, the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. We're talking about beyond. People who are really lost. And these are the ones who would have a hard time believing they're really invited to this feast. And so you got to compel them. Well, how, how do we do that? Ephesians 2.12 says, You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Now the love of Christ compels us. How do you compel someone to come to faith in Jesus when they feel like they are just too lost? The love of Christ. You just bombard them with the love of Christ. The reason why we are called as Christians to go out into the world and act in terms of love and mercy and compassion and grace is so that before we even speak the name of Jesus, those people who don't think they're savable will have an open heart to being saved. Does that make sense? That we compel people to come to the feast... We convince them that yes, even they are invited to the feast because God's love is that big. That's the compelling key. Now, one of the recliners had cried out back in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. 
And so Jesus' response in all of this to that man and to anyone else is yes, but the question is, who will receive the kingdom? Before the bread is even passed out, who's going to say yes to the invitation? There is more to this invitation than bland belief. And that's where Jesus goes in the last part of chapter 14. More than a head nod to God. You know, come to my feast. Gotcha. We'll be there, boss. We're good to go. It's much more involved in accepting the invitation. Verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Oy vey. He said the word. He said hate. Now to ease your minds a little bit, we can go to the Greek translation, which means hate. <laughs> if you come to me, he says, and this is just, I think, I think this is the most in-your-face statement Jesus ever made. If you don't hate your wife, Rick, when you come to me, can't be my disciple. What? If you don't hate your brother... Well, there have been times where I didn't like him much, so I could work around that one. I love my brother. If you don't hate your children, and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. You can't eat the bread of the kingdom until you first accept the invitation. And you cannot accept that invitation unless the love you have for Jesus is by comparison so great that the greatest love you have in your life looks like hate. That's what he's saying. That the love I have for my wife, great as it is, is nothing in comparison to the love Jesus seeks from me. How much do you love Him? He calls for a love so great, again, it makes all other love appear to be hate when compared. And that takes a lot of audacity for someone to say that. For Jesus Christ and His call to be set on the throne as the absolute Lord over all other people and things in my life, including fathers, mothers, wives, husbands, children, brothers, sisters, and of course He doesn't leave out your own life. How dare He ask such a thing of us? What right does He have to ask me to love Him that much? The right that He purchased at the cross when He loved me that much. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And those who are outside in the hedges and the byways who don't think they're savable need to hear that. They need to hear God's already proven His love for you. And when did He do that? By dying for you. Well, I didn't ask Him to do that. Exactly. You didn't ask Him to. And that's how much He loves you. Paul says in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And that's not just good doctrine, that is passion. To have that kind of love for Jesus 
and that He who died for me has the right to ask everything of me, even the right to ask for my life. Napoleon Bonaparte was once quoted as saying, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between Him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded His empire upon love, and this hour, millions would die for Him. Good word, Napoleon. Verse 28, Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So you cannot be my disciple who does not, or none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What is Jesus talking about? Planning to build a tower. Count the cost. Planning to go to war. Make sure that you can do it. And what he's talking about, and do not miss this, because this section of Scripture has been misapplied many times. He's talking about finishing faith. He's not talking about counting the cost. Well, I remember back when I was in college, David Meese. Any of you ever hear David Meese? Mark, remember David Meese, Christian artist, uh, came out with an album called Count the Cost. you got to count the cost if you're going to be a believer. Great album. Jesus is not telling people to count the cost. What? What, what, what are you talking about, Rick? Jesus is not saying count the cost. He's saying what you need here is finishing faith. Because the reality is, when we sit down and count the cost to see if we can follow Him all the way to the end, we come up woefully short. Alright? You can't count the cost and come up with enough to build that tower. You can't count the cost and come up with enough to fight off the enemy on your own and get to the end. We find when we count the cost, we can't afford it. It is an exercise in futility to count the cost. It is religion that says, figure out how to do this righteousness thing and go do it. Gang, we don't have enough provision to finish the project. So what do we do? We accept the provision of Jesus Christ. We recognize that it is His grace that fully saves us and not one iota of our works. I don't purchase a second in heaven by my good behavior. I get eternity in heaven by His grace. Finishing faith. He is, Hebrews 12.2, the author and finisher of my faith. Guess what? I don't even finish my faith. He does that. 
He increases it. He fills it out. He sanctifies. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is the provision for the strong tower of my faith. And secondly, as we try to count the cost, we realize we don't have enough power to fight the battle. We don't have the manpower. We can't do it. So what do we do? We send a delegation to ask for and accept the king's terms of peace. Note that. What do you do when you know you can't win this war? Well, you you send a delegate asking for terms of peace. So, Jesus goes before the Father to ask for terms of peace. And then He says, are you willing to accept the Father's terms? Well, what are the Father's terms? The Son's life for mine. I will be your peace. In fact, the Bible says He is our peace. And so He has purchased my salvation and become my peace. In his journal entry on October 28, 1949, Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Two years later, The 29-year-old Jim Elliott was killed by the Ecuadorian Alca tribe he had gone to save. But I'll tell you what, Jim Elliott was no fool. And what Jesus is saying to you, saying to me here at at the conclusion of all this, is man, what are you willing to give up so that I can bring you home? Verse 34, and it's not out of place... He says, therefore, salt is good. (laughs) I love Jesus because He just nails this, you know, you can't be My disciple if you don't give up all your possessions. Hey, salt is good. (laughs) Right? And so people are like, wait, what? And now having their attention again, He says, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt is good. I, I, I can't, no argument. I like salt. When we studied this in Mark chapter 9, we talked about how salt draws out flavor. Three things. Salt draws out flavor. Salt develops thirst. And salt doesn't break down in heat. And so in all these ways, there's this connection to salt. I would add this one to that list of three. Salt defends against corruption. There is corruption in the kingdom. There are birds in the tree, leaven in the grain offerings, tares among the wheat. And Bible students remember, with the grain offerings that were to be offered leaven-free, guess what they had to be offered with? Salt. Leviticus 2.13, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. In fact, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Stay salty. Discipleship, brothers and sisters, discipleship is our salted offering. Because our lives are all we've got to give. 
And so we give our lives as offering to the Lord, salted offering. Jesus ends His teaching with a clear warning against stale faith that sits there and does nothing. He says that is as useless as salt without taste. So, stay salty. Follow Jesus. Abide in Him. Bear the sweet fruit of repentance. And everybody knows an apple that's salted is better by far. Do this and you will not lose the flavor of the kingdom in your lives. And Jesus, we thank You for Your Word tonight. I just love sitting in Your in your teaching. I love how You turn a phrase, Lord. I love how You capture our attention. But may we have more than our attention captured tonight. I pray, Lord, You will have captured our hearts. And as You had promised not to let go, Lord Jesus, may we not let go of the wonder of the invitation before us. We as Your little flock to whom You have given the kingdom. Thank You, Jesus. And in Your name we pray. Amen.